This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Open Source Property by Stephen Clowney, James Grimmelman, Michael Grinberg, Jeremy Sheff, and Rebecca Tushnet. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Property Lectures. In this part one, we'll be discussing foundations. So beginning with ownership, and the following is an excerpt from William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. The third absolute right, inherent in every Englishman, is that of property, which consists in the free use, enjoyment, and disposal of all his acquisitions, without any control or diminution, save only by the laws of the land. The original of private property is probably founded in nature, as will be more fully explained in the second book of the ensuing commentaries. But certainly, the modifications under which we at present find it, the method of conserving it in the present owner, and of translating it from a man to man, are entirely derived from society and are some of those civil advantages in exchange for which every individual has resigned a part of his natural liberty. The laws of England are therefore, in point of honor and justice, extremely watchful in ascertaining and protecting this right. Upon this principle, the Great Charter has declared that no free man shall be deceased or divested of his freehold or of his liberties or free customs, but by the judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. So great, moreover, is the regard of the law for private property, 
that it will not authorize the least violation of it. No, not even for the general good of the whole community. If a new road, for instance, were to be made through the grounds of a private person, it might perhaps be extensively beneficial to the public. But the law permits no man or set of men to do this without consent of the owner of the land. In vain it may be urged that the good of the individual ought to yield to that of the community, for it would be dangerous to allow any private man or even any public tribunal to be the judge of this common good and to decide whether it be expedient or no. Besides, the public good is in nothing more essentially interested than in the protection of every individual's private rights, as modeled by the municipal law. In this and similar cases, the legislature alone can and indeed frequently does interpose and compel the individual to acquiesce. But how does it interpose and compel? Not by absolutely stripping the subject of his property in an arbitrary manner, but by giving him a full indemnification and equivalent for the injury thereby sustained. The public is now considered as an individual, treating with an individual for an exchange. All that the legislature does is to obligate the owner to alienate his possessions for a reasonable price. And even this is an exertion of power, which the legislature indulges with caution, and which nothing but the legislature can perform. There is nothing which so generally strikes the imagination and engages the affections of mankind as the right of property or the sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in total exclusion of the right of any other individual in the universe. End quote. So moving to the bundle of rights. We began with Blackstone's strong statement of the absolute right of property and have watched it gradually melt away. We have seen courts use a subtle and diverse array of tools to vindicate interests that conflict with a property owner's absolute rights. In one case, the court opined that state law rights of property must give way to more important principles of expressive and religious freedom enshrined in the federal constitution, at least where the property in question had been opened up to the public to serve as a substitute for a downtown business district. 
In another case, however, the court explicitly avoids this kind of constitutional trump card by manipulating the scope of the owner's rights under the common law of property to avoid conflict with competing statutory policies. We might look to two possible foundations for a more resilient concept of property. One foundation might be that property is a particular cohesive construct, a package deal. Thus, when we say that a person owns something, we might be saying that the person enjoys a predictable set of rights with respect to that thing. And this is one of the most common ways in which lawyers think about property as a bundle of rights. The United States Supreme Court has noted that the right to exclude is universally held to be a fundamental element of the property right and one of the most essential sticks in the bundle of rights that are commonly characterized as property. But property owners typically enjoy a number of additional rights. Among these are the right of possession, sometimes called a possessory right, the right of use, the power of alienation, that is, the right to transfer ownership to someone else, which can be further decomposed into the power to make a gratuitous transfer, that is, a gift, sometimes called a donative right, the power to transfer in exchange for valuable consideration, sometimes called the right to sell or vend, or the right of market alienation, and the power to dispose of property owned during life after death by will, sometimes called the testamentary right, or the right to devise. As with the right to exclude, each of these rights may be limited, particularly when they have the potential to conflict with competing rights or interests. We will study the law's protection of possession and the limits of that protection. We will make an extensive study of the power to alienate. And we will return to limits on the right of use. If the bundle of rights metaphor holds water, it really might help to distinguish property in a meaningful way from other private law rights such as those that arise in contract or tort, and allow us to predict how particular disputes over resources are likely to be resolved. Of course, some cases we will look at may give us some doubts about our likelihood of success. Indeed, we will be encountering more legal authorities that will challenge our ability to think about property is a coherent bundle of rights, as opposed to an ad hoc and unstable collection 
of whatever rights and duties we choose to apply in a particular set of circumstances. For example, in our discussion of the subject matter of property, we will see how things may be thought of as property even though they are not subject to certain of the traditional rights of ownership, particularly the right to alienate. We will also see how some things that are subject to certain of the traditional rights of ownership, such as the rights to possess and to exclude, are nevertheless excluded from the legal category of property. In our discussion of estates and future interests, we will see how property rights can be temporally divided. That a property right that exists today may nevertheless not entitle its owners to possession until some point in the future. In our discussion of co-ownership and marital interests, we will see how the division of ownership rights among multiple people impacts the rights to exclude, possess, alienate, and use, at least among co-owners. In our discussion of regulatory takings, we will see that in some circumstances, the right to exclude standing alone may be a sufficient condition for identifying property. So while there is a menu of rights, that appear to be consistent with ownership. It appears that the concept or label of property does not necessarily depend on a particular combination of those rights being present. A second possible foundation for our conception of property is that property, at the very least, involves some thing that is the subject of the right or rights that it is a right in rem. In particular, it might be intimately tied up with an individual's right to control something, principally, but not only by excluding others from access to that thing. The requirement of intermediation by some thing might also help distinguish property from contract and tort which may, but need not, involve competing claims to a thing. We will consider the types of things that might qualify as property in my discussion of the subject matter of property. Now moving to the subject matter of property. In this section, we will consider the various types of things that attract the legal label property. Let us begin with some examples. In light of our discussion of what it means to own something, which of the following things can be usefully thought of as your property? Your home or apartment? Your car or bike? Your computer? The software? on your computer, the emails stored on your computer, the emails stored on your cloud-based email service, your bank account, the money in your bank account, 
the money you lent to your friend that hasn't been repaid. The money your friend lent you that you haven't paid back. The things that you bought with the money your friend lent you. Your pet dog. Your dairy cow. The pig you are raising for meat. Your prescription medications. Your doctors or pharmacists or insurance companies' records of your prescription medications. Your medical history. Your handwritten diary. Your unpublished novel. Your published novel. Your social media profiles and content. Your password-protected blog. You may notice there is something of a chicken and egg problem here. Is the label property a premise or a conclusion? Can we arrive at the label without resorting to circular reasoning? When we say something is a person's property, or that someone has a property right, is that because we have examined the qualities and characteristics of the thing and its relation to the person, and determined that they are all consistent with some coherent notion of property ownership? Or is calling something property a mere assertion, constrained by circumstances, that we make because we want the consequences of the label property to attach to that thing for independent reasons? And is there a difference? So moving to property in persons. First, discussing the case, the Amistad, from 1841. The Amistad was a ship bound from one part of Cuba to another. On board were three Spanish subjects. Captain Ransom Ferrer, Jose Ruiz, and Pedro Montes. Also on board were 53 Africans, recently kidnapped from their home country and transported to Cuba, a Spanish territory where Ruiz and Montes had purchased them as slaves. Slavery was legal in Cuba at the time, though Spanish law banned the importation of slaves from Africa to the Americas. At sea, the Africans rose up, killed Ferrer, and took control of the Amistad, attempting to sail it back to Africa. Instead, they ended up off the coast of Long Island, where they and the ship were taken into custody by the U.S. Navy and brought to port in Connecticut. Ruiz and Montez filed libels, a type of property claim in admiralty law, seeking to recover the Africans and cargo they had on board. 
Their claim was backed by both the Spanish crown and the federal government, both of which cited a treaty between the two countries. The district court denied the Spaniards' claim for the Africans, but granted their claim for the cargo. And the circuit court summarily affirmed, the Supreme Court declared the Africans to be free. James Somerset was an enslaved African man who had been transported from colonial Massachusetts to England. Once in England, he escaped, but he was recaptured and imprisoned on a ship docked in the Thames, soon to depart for Jamaica. Somerset petitioned the king's bench for a writ of habeas corpus, challenging his confinement against his will by the ship's captain. In Somerset versus Stuart in 1772, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield, noting that slavery was legal in both the North American colonies and Jamaica, but had never been formally recognized as legal by the English Parliament, granted the writ, saying, quote, The slave departed and refused to serve, whereupon he was kept to be sold abroad. So high an act of dominion must be recognized by the law of the country where it is used. The power of a master over his slave is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, but only positive law, which preserves its force long after the reasons, occasion, and time itself from whence it was created, is erased from memory. It's so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. Whatever inconveniences, therefore, may follow from a decision, I cannot say this case is allowed or approved by the law of England, and therefore the black must be discharged. End quote. The result in Somerset is, on some level, the same as in Amistad. Both courts order captured and enslaved human beings to be set free. But the facts that put the question and the justifications for the result are subtly different in each case. Now, is your body your property? The English philosopher John Locke, who heavily influenced Blackstone and the Anglo-American legal tradition generally, seemed to think so. In his second treatise on government, chapter 5, section 27, Locke wrote, Though the earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. End quote. It is not accidental that Locke said that every man has a property 
in his own person. He didn't include women. Currently, the law insists that people are not property, even if the relation between a person and her own body or her own labor can be described in property terms. But as we will see, this does not mean courts do not still face difficult questions regarding property claims that involve human beings. Emancipation and Compensation Generally, if the government takes property for its own use, the government has to pay the former owner the fair market value of that property, as we will discuss in the section on takings. The Constitution, as amended, provides neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The 13th Amendment, along with its cousins the 14th and 15th Amendments, were designed to embed the results of the Civil War into the Constitution. Before the Civil War, Slavery's defenders considered enslaved people to be property, and many of slavery's opponents conceded that enslaved people were property according to the law of the land. Henry Clay, speaking against abolition, contended, The total value of the slave property in the United States is twelve hundred millions of dollars. It is the subject of mortgages, deeds of trust, and family settlements. It is the sole reliance, in many instances, of creditors within and without the slave states. That is property which the law declares to be property. End quote. The U.S. did not compensate enslavers upon emancipation, nor did it compensate enslaved people. By contrast, in 1833, Britain abolished slavery, but also provided for the compensation of enslavers for their lost property, representing roughly 800,000 enslaved people. The £20 million the government set aside to pay enslavers off represented 40% of the total government expenditure for 1834 and is the equivalent of between 16 and £17 billion, pounds, or $26 billion in 2015 terms. Until the bank bailouts of 2009, This payout to 46,000 enslavers was the largest in British history. Moreover, enslaved people were compelled to provide 45 hours of unpaid labor each week for their former masters for a further four years. Many well-known Britons can trace their ancestors and some fraction of their family wealth to enslavers.
Likewise, in 1825, France, warships at the ready, demanded that its former colony, Haiti, compensate France for its loss of plantations and enslaved people. Enslavers submitted detailed claims, which were later reduced to 90 billion francs, roughly $14 billion in modern terms, to be paid over 30 years. Haiti took until 1947 to pay off both the original claim to France and the additional interest accrued from borrowing from French banks to meet France's deadlines. Owning labor. The 13th Amendment is notable, among other things, for its lack of any state action requirement. While the other provisions of the Constitution control what the government may do and how it may do it, the 13th Amendment is a command to everyone. There shall be no slavery in the United States. Consider employment contracts that bar employees from competing if they leave or bar them from working in the same area or the same industry or bar them from using any information they learned while working for the employer. These restrictive covenants may mean that a person may be unable to work in the only field for which she is trained if she leaves her current employer which is likely to give her employer substantial leverage in negotiating salary and other terms of employment. Separately, consider the 13th Amendment's exception for involuntary servitude as punishment for crime. Prison takes away prisoners' liberty and their ability to use their own property and also coerces their labor. Does this mean that prisoners are property? In 1871, the Virginia Supreme Court declared prisoners to be slaves of the state. After the Civil War, African Americans in the South were routinely arrested for almost any reason, and local governments then sold their labor to white landowners for agricultural work. Prison labor currently produces billions of dollars worth of goods every year. Though most production now takes place within prison walls, all able-bodied federal prisoners are required to work. Some states require prisoners to work without pay. Body Parts State and federal statutes implicitly recognize some kind of property rights in body parts, permitting gifts from both living persons and dead donors, and even permitting sales, except for sales for the purpose of transplantation. Thus, the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 makes it a crime, quote, for any person to knowingly acquire, receive, or otherwise transfer any human organ 
for valuable consideration for use in human transplantation if the transfer affects interstate commerce. While the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act permits individuals to make a donation of all or part of a human body to take effect after the donor's death for the purpose of transplantation, therapy, research, or education. End quote. Body parts are therefore alienable. The right to possess and use them for certain purposes can be transferred, even though they can't be sold in some contexts. In Moore versus Regents of University of California in 1990, a leukemia patient sued his doctors who had used cells and tissues gathered during his treatment to create a cell line for research purposes and to obtain a potentially lucrative patent for the production of therapeutic proteins from that cell line. Moore's theory was that the doctors had taken and used his property, that is, parts of his body that had been removed during his cancer treatment, without his consent. Over multiple dissents, the court held that Moore's property claim must fail because he had no property right in cells excised from his body, but that he could recover in tort against his doctors if they had failed to inform him of their intent to use his cells for research and obtain his consent to such use prior to treating him. The unavailability of a conversion claim for the unauthorized taking of body parts may remove an obstacle to important medical research, but it can lead to problematic consequences for patients and their families. In January of 1951, a 31-year-old African-American woman named Henrietta Lacks was diagnosed with cervical cancer. She died, painfully, in October of 1951, leaving five children. Without her knowledge or consent, or that of her family, doctors gave a sample of her tumor to Dr. George Gee, a Johns Hopkins researcher who was trying to find cells that would live indefinitely in culture so researchers could more easily experiment on them. Her cells were his first success, and the cell line developed from her body was known as HeLa, or Henrietta Lacks. Dr. Jonas Salk used HeLa cells to develop the first polio vaccine, and they also helped in the development of numerous other drugs, treating diseases as diverse as Parkinson's, leukemia, and the flu. More than 60,000 articles have been written about research based on HeLa cells. Though Dr. Gee didn't make money from them, other researchers did. Selling HeLa cells has generated millions in profits, 
but none for the Lax family. In fact, some Lax family members suffered serious health problems, but they only found out about HeLa cells by accident, more than two decades later. Mrs. Lax's daughter-in-law met someone who recognized her surname and said he was working with cells from a woman named Henrietta Lax. She then told Mrs. Lax's son, saying, Part of your mother. It's alive. The family was proud their mother's cells had saved lives, but also felt exploited. Some members of the family had given blood to Johns Hopkins researchers, believing they were being tested for cancer. But in fact, the researchers wanted to use their blood to determine whether HeLa cells were contaminating other cultures. Ultimately, the National Institutes of Health agreed with the Lax family that her full genome data would only be available to researchers in order to preserve the family's privacy, that two representatives of the Lax family would serve on the NIH group responsible for reviewing biomedical researchers' applications for controlled access to HeLa cells, and that any researcher who uses the data would be asked to include an acknowledgement to the Lax family in their publications. However, no one would provide any compensation to the Lax family. Moving to markets for body parts. The U.S. has an opt-in system for organ donation at death, resulting in the fourth highest organ donor rate. Spain has the highest rate, with 35.3 donors per million people. Spain, like several other European countries, in theory has an opt-out regime in which organs will be donated at death in absence of an opt-out, but in practice doctors will ask relatives for consent regardless, and that consent is often denied. What if we allowed people to be paid during life for their agreement to be donors at death? What about sales by living donors? People can already sell skin tissue and blood. To those who say that such a system would coerce the poor to sell their organs, proponents respond that those sellers would be better off than they are in the present system, where they're still poor and have fewer options for earning money. Opponents note that there's evidence that donated blood is higher quality than paid-for blood, though the significance of those studies is contested. Donating bodily products, opponents argue, is an altruistic act that improves the human condition. Selling, by contrast, leads to attempts to sell shoddy products, here unhealthy organs for gain. Proponents of organ sales respond that poor quality organs can be screened out. To this, opponents rejoin that there's evidence of crowding out of altruistic motives by commercial motives. Now moving to intellectual property. Intellectual property laws purport to confer ownership rights in information. 
There is no one distinctive set of doctrines governing all intellectual property. Instead, the name intellectual property is a catch-all used to group several related sets of legal rights, each of which gives the rights holder an exclusive right to use certain information in certain ways or to prevent others from using certain information in certain ways. A defendant who uses that information in that way without the rights holder permission is said to be an infringer. It is common and in some respects accurate to describe the rights holder as the owner of the information. But keep in mind that only certain specified uses count as infringement. There is no body of intellectual property law that prohibits possessing or thinking about information, for example. Instead, different bodies of intellectual property law restrict different kinds of uses. In each case, the scope of the owner's rights is closely tied to what kinds of information that body of law protects and to the rules governing when someone becomes a rights holder. Learning a body of intellectual property law, therefore, requires learning its subject matter, its rules of initial ownership, and its rules of infringement. At the federal level, this traditionally includes the distinct bodies of law corresponding to copyrights, patents, and trademarks. Federal copyright law protects original works of authorship, like novels, biographies, songs, screenplays, paintings, blueprints, and sculptures. Federal patent law protects any new and useful process, machine, manufacture, or composition of matter. Trademark law is a hybrid of state and federal rights. Its basis for protection is a little different. A trademark is a word or symbol, like Nike or the swoosh logo, that distinguishes goods or services in the marketplace. One gains trademark rights by using a mark on goods so that consumers associate the mark with a particular source. Despite the name, it is highly controversial whether intellectual property should be considered a species of property at all. Consider why advocates might want to embrace or deny that label, and what, if anything, is at stake. Does the relevance or the meaning of the label property change depending on whether it is used to refer to the intangible ideas embodied in an object or to the object itself? These types of property rights can overlap or conflict and some of the most important doctrines of intellectual property law are devoted to sorting out these issues. Moving to allocation. We may well conclude that certain types of resources should be subject to private ownership. And we may further conclude that such ownership ought to entail particular rights of owners. But this would not be sufficient to establish a system of property rights. We would still need to decide which things are owned 
by whom? Certainly, if one of the rights of owners is power to alienate, then once something is legitimately owned by someone, that person can transfer rightful ownership to someone else. We will study how such transfers can come about later in this discussion. Indeed, we will find that some transfers can confer the rights of ownership on a transferee even where the transferor's rights are not so clear. We will also see that there are ways for things owned by one person to become owned by another person other than by voluntary transfer. We will examine the most common justification for protecting someone's rights of ownership, that is, possession. The common law holds that initial ownership of an unowned thing goes to the first to possess that thing. That first in time is first in right. But as we will see, this rule is not as straightforward as it may seem. To begin with, reasonable people may differ as to what constitutes possession or what it means to be first. Moving to initial allocation of chattels. In Aberdeen Arctic Company versus Sutter in 1862, the House of Lords heard the appeal of a case involving a hired Eskimo harpooner aboard an English whaling vessel in Cumberland Inlet, a traditional native fishing ground in what is now Canada. The harpooner named Bulligar struck a whale with a harpoon and line, at the end of which was attached an inflated sealskin, or drog, which the native fishermen had a custom of using to tire the harpooned animal and to make it easier to track while it swims below the surface. The whale dove immediately, so deep that Bulligar was forced to release his line and it did not surface again until it had traveled several miles. Before Bulligar and his ship could retrieve it, another ship, the Alibi, came upon the wounded whale, killed it, and took it. Bulligar's captain, Sutter, sued the owners of the Alibi for compensation and damages in the amount of 1,200 pounds. The law lords found for the owners of the alibi. Recognizing a custom of English whalers in the shallower waters around Greenland. This custom was known as fast and loose. According to the fast and loose rule, the first ship to harpoon a whale has a right to the animal so long as the ship holds fast to its line even if other ships participate in the ultimate killing and capture of the whale. But if the whale should break free, even if mortally wounded, or if the line should be intentionally cut or released, even for reasons of safety or necessity, the whale becomes loose and will become the property of the first ship to actually secure it. And moving to escape and return. 
the common law developed particular rules to deal with a captured wild animal that later escaped. In general, once such an animal is free of the control of its captor, that captor loses their property right in the animal. It becomes once again fere nature, and a new captor can become its owner by killing or capturing it, free of any claim by the original captor. If, however, the animal in question has animus revertendi, a natural tendency to return to its place of captivity, like, say, homing pigeons, hived bees, or trained hawks, its temporary departure from the possession of the original owner does not diminish that owner's property right. Moving to allocation of land. Unlike foxes, whales, and baseballs, real property, that is land and structures and other improvements attached to land, isn't subject to the physical control of an individual in the same way that chattels are. So what might be the legal basis for allocating private rights in real property? Claims to ownership of land in England trace back as much as a thousand years. In 1066, the Duke of Normandy invaded England and defeated the Anglo-Saxon king Harold at the Battle of Hastings. William, now William the Conqueror, promptly set about parceling out rights to possess land in his new kingdom. William allocated these rights according to his political and military needs, affirming the rights of Anglo-Saxon landholders who supported him, while expropriating the land of his opponents and reallocating it to his loyal Norman nobles. These nobles received their rights of tenure from the Latin word tenere and Norman-French word tenere, to hold, under obligations of fealty, meaning fidelity or loyalty. The land each nobleman held was referred to as his fee, hence the name historians have applied to the resulting social system Feudalism. Feudal obligations typically include payment of taxes in cash or kind and rendering of services, primarily military services, to the tenants or holders, lord and king. This system evolved over the centuries into the modern system of land ownership, a historical process we will revisit later in our discussion of estates in land. Moving to wild animals on owned land. Ration soli is the principle that the right to take possession of wild animals belongs to the owner of the land where the animal may be found. Thus title to any animals captured or killed on owned land automatically vests in the landowner. The English rule is in stark opposition to the civil, that is, Roman law rule, 
which is that the captor of the wild animal acquires property rights in the animal wherever captured, though he may be liable in trespass to the owner of the real property on which the animal was pursued or taken. This distinction affects not only the right to possession of the animal itself, but also the measure of damages, because the damages from the trespass may be less than the value of the animal. Ration Soli was initially rejected by the newly independent American states in favor of a rule of free-taking. This made some sense in the America of John Locke's imagination, a vast, naturally bountiful, largely undeveloped, and sparsely populated continent. Moreover, quote, In the New World, game was no sporting matter, but rather a source of food and clothing. End quote. Thus, for the first century of the New Republic's life, landowners for the most part enjoyed no special privileges to wild animals on their otherwise idle land. Hunters were presumed to be free to enter or cross unenclosed and undeveloped land in pursuit of game, even where that land was privately owned. Landowners could defeat this presumption by posting notices of their intent to exclude hunters at the boundaries of their property, but in practice posting was uncommon and generally ineffective for large holdings in the wilds of the frontier. Over time, even the vast North American continent saw its natural resources threatened with depletion by over-exploitation, and its lands subject to increased development that conflicted with the free-taking regime. Nevertheless, while a small number of American cases adopted Ration Soli, the rule never took hold here as it did in England. Today, wild animals are subject to a variety of state and federal regulations that fairly comprehensively govern whether, when, and under what circumstances they may be hunted or captured, on the theory that wildlife is a common resource to be managed by the government for the benefit of the people. And finally, the tragedy of the commons. One of the key pieces invoked by economists to justify private property rights is The Tragedy of the Commons, famously described in an essay of the same name by Garrett Hardin, stating, Picture a pasture open to all. It is to be expected that each herdsman will try to keep as many cattle as possible on the commons. As a rational being, Each herdsman seeks to maximize his gain. Explicitly or implicitly, more or less consciously, he asks, What is the utility to me of adding one more animal to my herd? The herdsman receives all the proceeds from the sale of the additional animal. Since, however, the effects of overgrazing are shared by all the herdsmen, any particular decision-making herdsman bears only a fraction of the negative effects of his additional animal. 
the rational herdsman concludes that the only sensible course for him to pursue is to add another animal to his herd, and another, and another. But this is the conclusion reached by each and every rational herdsman sharing a commons. Therein is the tragedy. Each man is locked into a system that compels him to increase his herd without limit, in a world that is limited. End quote. The negative effects of each additional animal, which are suffered by all the common owners collectively, are what economists refer to as an externality. Some of the things we do with the resources we control can make others better or worse off. If I divert a stream to my crops, your crops may wither. If I plant a rose bush in my garden, you may enjoy the smell of my flowers on your way to work each day. The key point to keep in mind about these externalities caused by my conduct is that I care about them less than you do. I am better off if the stream I diverted makes my crops more productive. The fact that the diversion causes your crops to die doesn't, according to this theory, affect me. Externalities can lead to the kind of misallocation of investment and effort we see in the overcrowded pasture. In deciding whether to engage in an activity, I am unlikely to take sufficient account of the effects of my activity on others. This, in turn, can lead to bad aggregate outcomes. I may impose large costs on all my neighbors by engaging in an activity that is of only moderate benefit to me, or I may refrain from an activity that would confer large benefits on many people at only moderate cost to myself. The trouble is that I have no incentive to weigh the cost of your dying crops. The economist's solution to this problem is to internalize the externalities that result from resource use. That is, to find some way to make the effects of a person's actions matter. One way to internalize the externalities that generate the tragedy of the commons is to convert the commons to private ownership. Indeed, Professor Harold Demsetz famously argued that property rights arise precisely when the benefits of exploiting a scarce resource have increased in value due to increasing demand or decreasing supply. To the point where the right to control that value would be a sufficient incentive to undertake the costs of responsibly managing the resource, that is, where an owner would be willing to internalize the externalities of using the resource. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.